This morning's scripture is from Paul's letter, second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. It's on page 970 in your pew Bible, as well as on the screen behind me. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except for my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be, I would not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with the weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's word. I invite you to find your way back to 2 Corinthians 12, and let's pray together as we look at God's word. Lord, your word is a light and a lamp. It is our guide, and it's because in it you speak. You speak to tell us who you are. You speak to show us what you've done. You speak to show us how to live. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak this morning, or more, that you would give us ears to hear what you're speaking. Because whenever your word is opened, you are speaking, God. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see you and hearts ready to be changed by the truth of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we jump back into our series through the book of Exodus, which is kind of where, I don't know, maybe a third of the way through before we hit Advent this past year, uh, before we jump back into that series next week, I want to take the opportunity at the start of a new year to review and reflect a little bit on our vision as a church, what God has called us to as a congregation. As we framed it to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ across the Metro West. You'll see that on our website. You'll see that printed inside the worship folder uh, in different places. That is the vision we adopted uh, just about five years ago as a congregation, which was really the culmination of uh, a significant time of reflection and revisioning and renewal 
and really finding our way back to the heart of what God has called us uh, to be and to do as a church. And there are several key words in our vision statement which can feel a little bit like buzzwords or cliche, but in their intent are anything but that. Uh, so uh, if you see it on your worship folder, be on the next slide, I think, on the screen. A gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. By gospel, we mean the good news of who God is and what he has done to establish his kingdom and to deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean by gospel. It means good news. It is the heart of the Christian faith. It is the central message of all of Scripture, of who God is and what he's done through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. By gospel-centered, we mean keeping that message of the gospel as the main thing. The church is always being tempted to put something other than the gospel at the center of its life and ministry. And it's often very good things that we're tempted to kind of stick there at the center. might be family, uh, could be youth ministry or children or preaching or music or missions or uh, social justice or outreach or community service, any number of really good things. But none of those other things are able to give shape and direction and significance to everything that the church is called to do. None of them are able to empower everything that we are called to do. And so therefore, none of them should be at the center. Rather, we want everything that we are and everything that we do to flow out of the gospel of Christ and to point back to the gospel of Christ. It's the pivot foot. It's the anchor. It's the center of who we are and what we do. The gospel is not just a message for non-Christians. Sometimes we think of it at that, that way because the gospel is how somebody begins a relationship with Christ. It's we, we believe this message of who Jesus is and what he's done, and, and that's how we begin this relationship. But so often we then kind of set it to the side as though we, we grow out of our need for it. But the gospel is not just for, for non-Christians. It is for everyone. It's not that we become a Christian by grace through faith, and then from that point on we serve God by you know, human effort and hard work. That's not how, how it works. Rather, the same grace that saves us also transforms us and equips us and strengthens us for ministry in Christ. We never outgrow our need for the gospel of Christ. And so that's why it must be the anchor, the center point, the pivot. So we want to be centered on the gospel. That's the heart of our vision as a church. But while that message of Christ comes to us, just as we are, it does not leave us as it finds us. The good news of God changes us and bears fruit in our lives. It, it bears fruit among us, specifically in community, and through us in mission. And those were other two key words in our vision statement. By community, we're talking about relationship. Relationship with God, relationship with each other. And by mission, we're talking about purpose. 
The fact that we have been saved for a reason. We have been rescued uh, and sent in order to be sent into the world to serve God by bearing witness to his gospel through both our word and our deeds, uh, through our love and our message, in order to make disciples of all nations. So, so we live out this Christian life, not as individuals, but as a community, and not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world God has sent us into. And, and this idea of mission and community mutually reinforce each other. On the one hand, uh, being becoming part of a community or a family is a fruit of the gospel. It's one of the results of what happens when God changes our lives. We don't just begin a relationship with God. We're brought into a family. Uh, community is a fruit of the gospel's mission. And yet, it's also the context in which that mission is best lived out. As a a body working together, laboring side by side for the advance of the gospel. And so they mutually reinforce each other, pivoting on that centerpiece of who God is and what he's done. Not who we are or what we do, but who God is and what he's done through the good news of Christ. So that's been our vision as a church, um, to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. And by God's grace... Uh, it's become increasingly true of us as a congregation over the last five years. You never arrive at something like this. Uh, you never, not the side of heaven. So there, there's no way in which we'll ever be able to say until the Lord comes back, yeah, this is really true of us in every way. It's not. But we've grown. We've grown. We have a long way still to grow, especially when it comes to outreach and mission. I think that's still our, our biggest horizon but, but God has been at work in us, and, and it's been an exciting thing to be part of. But as 2017 is here, uh, there's a strong sense among our elder board that the time has come to take a fresh look at our vision as a church. Uh, not to replace any of these values or move on from them or leave them behind, but to ask How does God want us to put them into practice as a congregation in more specific ways moving forward? Because our vision statement is pretty general. It's kind of a a picture of what the church is to be. But how do we live? How does God want us to live that out in specific, focused ways in the months and years ahead? That's a question that we've been feeling we need to begin investigating and, and prayerfully seeking God about. Uh, as we move forward, New England is still a mission field. The Barna Group released a poll this year ranking American cities in terms of what they called Bible mindedness, which means uh, those who report reading the Bible in a typical week and who strongly assert that the Bible's accurate. So they did a poll. Boston ranks 99 out of 100 on that list. We still have a mission field. We still have a calling to make Christ known. And that mission is unchanging, to make disciples for Christ. But what does that look like for this particular people, in this particular place, at this specific time right now? That's the question we really want to seek God and and understand uh, what he's calling us to as a congregation, as we 
move forward to advance the gospel here in the Metro West and, and beyond. And so it's a conversation we're going to be having in the weeks and months ahead. You'll be hearing more about this and inviting to, to share your thoughts and your prayers. And, 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 and this is something we want to discern together as a body. This isn't something like, hey, the elders came up with something and we think you all should like get on board with it. This is something we want to seek God together as a family, as a body. And so we're going to be talking about that. I don't have answers yet. None of us do yet. But God does. And so we're going to seek him. But whenever you begin to strategize or uh, dream about ministry and what it might become, whenever you start to think about change or, or growth or what we would do differently or how to move forward, there is always a temptation, on the one hand, to approach ministry in order to make much of ourselves. So that's always a temptation on the one hand. Or on the other hand, to avoid ministry because it's too much for us. Too, too big of a cost. I'm not good enough. Whatever. Those are the temptations I want to talk about this morning. And, and this is especially true when you consider the prevailing values and impulses in the evangelical culture today in North America. So much of what dominates the conversations about these kinds of things is the drive to go bigger and better, to be the best, uh, to come up with the best programs, the best facility, the best social media presence in order to attract a bigger audience so they can hear the gospel, which you know, sounds like a very noble drive. We want to expose more and more people to the gospel of Christ. But what has happened with it is that it, this drive, this, this impulse for bigness has effectively turned gospel ministry into a competition in the culture today. A competition making Christians and, and non-Christians into consumers and often treating successful church leaders like celebrities. Uh, you look at the, you know, what's on sale in the Christian book section today. And this is the, you know, both the titles and the way things are treated. This is the sense that you get. Success is measured in market share and book deals as opposed to faithfulness and spiritual maturity. This is the climate that surrounds evangelicalism today, which excites some church leaders and some churches because they want, you know, they're eager to compete. They, they're up for the challenge, eager to make, get their brand out there. Uh, and it causes others to shrink back because they can't compete. Uh, the churches and leaders to become insecure, to kind of withhold or, or, or doubt themselves, to become envious of other churches that seem more successful, perhaps bitter. Uh, it, it, if you think of it in the marketing and business terms that have really begun to set the stage for how people talk about these things in the church, it's really the Walmart syndrome. It's the Walmart syndrome where you either hate the big box store or you want to be the big box store. And sometimes both, secretly. You, you love it if you're that and you hate it if you're not. 
Now, of course, that's a mass, gr- massive, gross generalization. Not every small church is insecure and not every big church is greedy. Uh, I have served in both big and small churches and have seen gospel ministry thrive in both contexts. Uh, it is what I would describe as an epidemic in our culture, though. This pragmatic, consumer-driven market mentality of church. But the issue is not size. It's not even strategy. The issue is the heart. The heart, the drive and impulse of our hearts. The temptation to approach ministry in order to make much of ourselves or to avoid it because it's too much for us. And so as we enter into this season of thinking freshly about the specifics of our vision, what is God calling us to as we move forward? This is what I want to think about this morning. Some perspective as we begin to dream and look ahead. How do we chart a course forward amid these prevailing currents of consumerism and competition that dominate the evangelical landscape? How will we as a church measure success? And I want to explore that question by looking together at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. So again, if you're not still there, I invite you to to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now we don't necessarily or typically think of the book of Corinthians in these terms, or the book of 2 Corinthians, but there is a sense in which it's all about what success really looks like in ministry. What does real success look like in ministry? Uh, Paul deals with this a lot in this book, the kind of ministry that God approves of and works through. And one of the reasons he addresses this so much is because his own ministry is being challenged by the church in Corinth. Uh, the ancient uh, the church in ancient Corinth had no shortage of issues. If you read 1 Corinthians, uh, it's kind of like a laundry list of church dysfunction in a lot of ways. Uh, but one of their consistent challenges was this drive toward creating factions around different church leaders. And Paul spoke to that in his first letter to them, where, where the issue had to do a lot with uh, groups aligning themselves with this church leader or that one. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And he kind of began dealing with that in his first letter. But the situation has become far more dangerous by the time 2 Corinthians uh, comes around. Because it's no longer followers uh, bickering over whose leader is better. There has now a group of leaders who have either shown up or risen up in Corinth claiming a superiority for themselves. We're the leaders that you really need to be following. Paul caricatures them as super apostles. That's what he calls them in the book. Uh, We might refer to them today in today's language as celebrity pastors or something like that. They have turned ministry into a competition. They've turned ministry into a competition, measured not by faithfulness to the gospel, but by rhetorical flourish and showmanship and power and strength and popularity, by their persona. That's how they measure success. And who therefore challenge Paul's authority as an apostle 
because of his weak persona, because of his poor speaking abilities and his frequent suffering. Paul is a loser to them. Always suffering, always ending up in prison. They don't like losers. They like people who don't get caught. They like people who stay on top. And and so there's this challenge to Paul's authority. But the real reason he's exercised over this is not so much that they're edging in on his territory. Paul could care less about that. Read Philippians 1. The real reason he's concerned is because they're not even preaching the true gospel. They've come in with this kind of dog and pony show, but their message isn't even the true message of Christ. It's one thing to criticize Paul. It's a completely different thing to teach a gospel other than the one that the apostles have been entrusted with and have taught to them. And that's the situation in Corinth. Paul explains in chapter 11 his his jealousy over this church. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed? Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received? Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted? You put up with it readily enough. They don't care that the message is different. They're drawn to these leaders because they speak from a position of power. And that's attractive to them. Paul's deeply concerned about that. And so he spends much of his letter making a defense for his legitimate ministry among them, for his apostolic authority, that he really has been sent by Christ to bring them the gospel. Not because ministry is a competition and he's losing market share, but because, in this case, rejecting Paul's apostolic authority also meant rejecting the apostolic message. If they were going to get rid of Paul, they were also actually getting rid of his message, the true gospel of Christ. And he couldn't just sit back and watch that happen. The gospel that Christ entrusted to his apostles, the gospel which the Corinthians received, in which they stand, by which they're being saved, if they hold fast to the word that was preached to them, that Jesus Christ died for sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15. And oddly enough, not oddly enough, uh, profoundly enough, it's the same gospel message that, that not only is the heart of, the sal- of salvation for the Corinthians, it's also the foundation of Paul's very calling and qualifications as a minister of the gospel. It is not just that which saves us, but that which strengthens and equips us and displays God's glory through us, even through weakness and suffering. And so that's his big point he's after in the book. One of the ways he makes that point is a little cheeky when you get to chapters 11 and 12. He uh, indulges his detractors 
by playing a little game that the super apostles are used to playing called, let me tell you about my ministry. These guys were used to boasting in their ministry and all of the things they've accomplished for God. And Paul says, okay, if they can boast, I can boast too. I'm going to be an idiot. I'm going to act like a fool. Don't do this at home, kids. But here I'm going to tell you all about my ministry. But he turns the super apostles game on its head. And instead of boasting in all of his great accomplishments, he boasts in his weaknesses and all of the things that make him look bad because it's through those that Christ looks good. In chapter 11, he, he boasts about his accomplishes, uh, his experiences in ministry, specifically all that he has suffered for Christ. And then when you come to chapter 12, to our passage this morning, he turns to a new subject. He says, let me go on to visions and revelations in the Lord. Let's talk about these kind of supernatural spiritual experiences. These guys can boast about that. So can I. But notice what he does here. In verses 1 through 6, he describes the kind of spiritual experience that he won't boast about. The kind of experience that would actually exalt him. I'm not going to boast about that. Then in verses 7 to 10, he talks about the kind of experience he will boast in. One that demonstrates his own weakness and through, therefore, Christ's power. The funny thing is in this section is that he's talking about the exact same spiritual experience in both places, but in two different ways, um, which is a little confusing. We'll walk through it. But what he's doing with that, the way that he talks about that, is what shows us what real ministry success looks like and depends on and helps us, therefore, navigate the question before us. How do we guard against these two temptations of of approaching ministry in order to make much of ourselves or avoiding it because it's too much? The secret to ministry success, according to Paul, is the sufficient grace of Christ. That's the key. Because the grace of Christ is sufficient for us, we can be both confident in our ministry and content in our weaknesses. Because God's the one who's on display. It's his work that makes the difference. And so look at verses 1 through 6, where Paul refuses to boast. This is what Paul refuses to boast in. And the lesson here for us is to pursue ministry that exalts Christ and not ourselves. That's the point of the first six verses. So he's playing the boasting game. He's mimicking in a somewhat snarky, very subversive way uh, the pride of the super apostles. And in playing this game, he relates one of his spiritual experiences, this incident uh, Uh, where he had a vision that he received. And he talks about it in very vague and elusive terms. In fact, he talks about it in the third person. He doesn't even own it. He says, well, I know a guy who had this happen to him. Uh, It's kind of like when you have a question that you want to ask, but you don't know want people to know that it's your question, so I'm asking for a friend. That's basically what Paul's doing here talking about his experience. I know a guy who who had this pretty incredible thing happen to him. And we know that it's actually Paul, because when he gets to verse 7, he owns it. 
He talks about to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of this revelation that I that I got. So we know he's talking about himself. So what is he talking about and why is he talking about it in such kind of a mysterious way? Well, he's he's vague about the actual experience. We don't really know a whole lot of what happened to him. He received a vision from God some 14 years earlier from from when he's writing in which he was caught up into the very presence of God, what he describes as the third heaven or paradise, which are very vague terms. Um, but by third heaven, it probably means, you know, in the Bible, the sky is called heaven. Or is you, that word is used to describe the sky. It's used to describe the stars, and it's used to describe the dwelling place of God. So by third heaven, that's probably what he means is the very presence of God. He's caught up to the highest heaven. Probably somewhat similar to what you see in Isaiah 6 in his vision there in God's throne room. Uh, And in God's presence, he heard incredible things that he's not even permitted to talk about. I heard things that not just that are indescribable, that I'm not allowed to describe. He's not even sure whether this happened bodily or not. He says that like twice, whether it was in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. But he had this amazing experience. And what he is sure about, though, is that he's not going to boast in this experience. I will not boast about that. He will only boast in his weaknesses. He refuses to boast in anything that will make him look good. In anything that will exalt himself. Now, he could boast about it. He wouldn't be lying. He wouldn't be untruthful. Verse 6, though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. So why does he refuse? Why why the, the vague mystery in the way that he describes this? Well, as he says in verse 1, it does no good. There's nothing to be gained by boasting about something like this. Uh, he doesn't deny that spiritual experiences like this happen, but he will not glory in them or base his authority on them because they're useless when it comes to edifying others or establishing his apostolic authority. He's not even permitted to tell you what he saw. And so there's no value to the church for him to go on talking about his experience. Paul does not want his ministry, his apostolic authority, to rest on some private spiritual experience that no one else saw, and everyone's just going to have to take his word for it. And if they take his word for it, probably will praise him or even idolize him because of it. They'll make much of him. Wow, that's, you must be really special to God. Paul's not going to play that game. He wants his authority as a minister of Christ to rest only on what others can see and hear in him for themselves. Namely, his suffering on their behalf. That's what they can see, him suffer. And the proclamation of the gospel. That's what they can hear from Paul. Base your opinion of my ministry on those things, not on some boastful, secret, spiritual experience that I had. That's what he means in the second part of verse 6. I refrain from boasting so that no one may think more of me 
than he sees in me or hears from me. I'm not going to play that boasting game. Paul refuses to boast in anything that would make much of himself instead of Christ. Even things that actually happen to him. Even skills and gifts that he actually possesses. Which I think has a lesson for us as we think about what is God calling us to as a church. That we must pursue ministry that exalts Christ and not Westgate. There is a gravitational pull within fallen humanity to make everything revolve around us. I mean, just watch your kids play for five minutes at home. Somehow everything within that five minutes will become all about us. It's just it's fallen humanity. We do it all the time. And, and neither individual Christians nor churches are immune from that. Even Paul was tempted to exalt himself because of this great experience, as he'll talk about in verses 7 through 10. So much that it required a little divine intervention to keep him humble. It is so easy to make church man-centered, us-centered, instead of God-centered. To make worship all about our experience, to to run programs driven by our needs or our aspirations or our personal goals, to, to turn outreach into getting our name out there, and to think that we're serving God all the while doing all of these things that are really about us. That is a massive temptation to do that. And again, none of this is about size or strategy or experience or skill. This is about the heart. It's about our ambition our aspiration, our drive personally as a congregation? What are we pursuing in the name of ministry? Is it God's glory or is it ours? May it never be ours. May it never be ours. Scott Haifman summarizes this passage. He says, Paul's example here reminds us that our public ministry, pulpit presence, Programs and personal lives should all communicate our utter dependence on and satisfaction in God rather than calling attention to our own strength, experiences, and if we're in the ministry, quote, professionalism. In the words of John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. That must be our motto in ministry. Christ must increase, we must decrease. Whatever we think God is calling us to as we move forward, make sure His glory is what's driving it. Make sure His glory is what lies at the end of that path. Otherwise, it's not even worth setting out. So there's a temptation to pursue ministry in order to make much of ourselves, But there's also a temptation to avoid ministry because it feels too much. It's to, you know, to think that we have nothing to offer, that we're not qualified or skilled enough, we don't have the resources, we the price, the cost is just too high. Paul addresses this second temptation in verses seven through ten. And this is what he will gladly boast in. Namely, his weaknesses. And the lesson for us moving forward is to practice ministry with confidence in Christ 
and contentment in our weaknesses. Confidence in Christ and contentment in our weaknesses. So he continues to talk about the same experience, but in verse 7, he he changes his tune slightly. Uh, When this elative spiritual experience produces suffering in his life. He refuses to boast in his glory, but when but he will gladly boast in the weaknesses that have been caused by this vision. And that's what he talks about here, even though he continues to remain pretty vague about the whole thing. Verse 7, so to keep me from being conceited by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he's tempted to feel great about himself because of this. But to keep him from being conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Now, he never really tells us what this thorn is. Pretty clearly a metaphor, uh, but we're not sure what for. People have debated, you know, is it persecution? Is it some physical ailment that he struggled with, uh, a chronic illness? Uh, We really don't know. We know that he received it because of the revelation. Like it's directly related to that. We know that it was sent from Satan, the accuser, in order to afflict him. And we know that the purpose was to humble Paul, to keep him from giving in to that temptation to make much of himself through ministry. We also know that whatever it is, It was incredibly painful. It was something he longed to be rid of. He pleads with God three times to take it away, which is probably uh, not simply saying he prayed about it three times, but but that his plea was so full, you know, the three being this metaphor of just, I've I've taken this as far as I can go with God, and he's given me his answer. Uh, He pled with God to take it away. But God demonstrated his power in Paul's life and ministry, not by taking away his weakness, but by working through it. By working through it. The kind of weakness that the super apostles would make fun of or point to in order to disqualify Paul, the kind of weakness that Paul found personally unbearable, this is how God answered his request to take it away. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's how God answered Paul's prayer. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If we listen to the spirit of our age, or even to the whispers in our own hearts, It's tempting to think that in order to be useful to God, we have to have it all together. We have to be a spiritual powerhouse. And that our weaknesses compromise our usefulness to God or or perhaps even flat out disqualify us. If if we don't have it all together, if we we have weakness in our lives, we can't be used by God. I I don't know enough. I'm not holy enough. My my sins are too much. There are better people than me to do this job. I've got too much on my plate already. I could pray for y'all. Could maybe give some money, but I'm not the guy. 
to go give my life away, whatever that looks like. We focus on our weaknesses and we avoid ministry because it's too much. But what Christ tells Paul and through him tells us is not to focus on our weaknesses, not to focus on that which we think will will keep us away from ministry or make us not useful to God, but instead to focus on God's grace. That's where he wants us to set our sights. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It is the grace of God that not only saves us, but also sanctifies and equips and strengthens us to serve God. So what do we mean by grace? Grace is when God gives us something incredible, even though we actually deserve something terrible. So we, because of our sin, deserve God's judgment and wrath. That's what we really, if we're going to put things on a scale, that's what we've got coming. God's judgment for our rebellion. But, as Paul puts it in chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's grace. Because Jesus is our faithful representative and our willing substitute in his life and his death. God gives us the credit for Jesus's life and then takes our sin and puts them on Jesus's side of the scale where he takes the punishment in our place willingly. That's grace. We get the credit for Christ's life. He takes the blame for our mess out of his love. And knowing that that's what it was going to take to save us as he died on the cross and then rose again to defeat sin and death. And so the relationship that a Christian has with God is not something that we earn or deserve. It is only by grace through faith in Christ. When we find ourselves pursuing ministry in order to make much of ourselves or avoiding ministry because it's too much for us, we reveal the fact that we are not depending on grace. We're not depending on grace. To exalt ourselves in ministry or to avoid it because we feel unfit is to live as though our sufficiency before God is based on our own life, our own effort. But as Paul protests in in chapter 216, if that's the case, Who's sufficient for these things? No one can stand. His answer in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, this is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. It is grace that saves us, and it is grace that sanctifies and strengthens and qualifies and equips us to serve the Lord. The secret to ministry success is not anything that we bring to the table. 
It is the grace of God in Christ, which displays Christ's power through our weakness. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure, the gospel of Christ, his life-changing power. We have this treasure in jars of clay, fragile pots, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Or as Paul says in chapter 12, verse 9, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When it comes to serving Christ in ministry, we need not be insecure or ashamed or afraid of owning our weaknesses, the fact that we have not arrived, that we don't have it all together, that we're not perfect, that we're a bumbling mess at times. That doesn't mean God can't use us. Nor does it mean that we brag about how sinful we are or take pride in being sloppy in ministry or something like that. It doesn't mean that God's more honored in worship when our music's bad or when there are typos in the worship folder. He's going to get more glory that way. Or that he gets more glory if I'm obnoxious and abrasive to my non-believing neighbors. Make it harder for him. That way his power will really be seen to come through if, if I can convince them to, you know. It does not, it's not boasting in our weakness in terms of uh, taking pride. Suffering and weakness are a means to God's glory. They're not a necessary condition we're supposed to seek out. Um, let's do worse today so God gets more glory. It's not what he's talking about. We should work hard at serving God. We should care about the health of our ministries, the quality of our music, the effectiveness of our programs. Not because God can't use us if we don't do our best, but because God is worthy of our best. But he does not need us to be the best in order to use us. He does not need us to be the best in order to use us. We don't have to prove ourselves to God. We don't have to prove ourselves to the world. We don't have to prove ourselves to each other. Our sufficiency is Christ, who by his grace, on the basis of his own life, death, and resurrection, has made us to be ministers of a new covenant. And so we need not be insecure or afraid. We don't have to hide our weaknesses or pretend that they're not there or compensate for them. It is through the imperfection of Westgate Church that the perfection of Christ will be easiest to spot. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. I am excited to follow God together as a congregation. To make his name known across the Metro West and even to the ends of the earth. And I'm excited to seek him together to to see what that might look like in more specific applied terms in the months and years ahead. 
But whatever we sense God calling us to, it must exalt Christ and not us. And it must be fueled by grace. We must continue to strive for a centrality of the gospel in everything. Which means that we can practice ministry with confidence. Because it's Christ's power that's at work. It's Christ's spirit. He's the one who shows up. We can practice ministry with confidence. And contentment in our weaknesses. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. With the power of Christ on display. Let's pray. Gracious Father, who is sufficient for these things? Not a single one of us, Lord. Not a single one of us here is sufficient to be a light to the world, to be a child of your kingdom. Not a single one of us is sufficient to to be qualified to make Christ your Son, our Savior, known. Thank you that our sufficiency is not in ourselves. It does not come from us, but it comes from Christ who has done everything necessary to qualify us through our union with Him and to cleanse us through His death on the cross. And who is with us right now by His Spirit to use us to be a display of Your glory on this earth. Lord, who is sufficient? We are not, but you are. And in Christ, we are competent to be ministers of your new covenant. God, may we embrace that as families, as individuals, as a church. May we embrace the call you've given us to make much of you depending on your grace. And may you be pleased to use us to spread your glory in the Metro West and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.